Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make Supply Chain Management Review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of Talking Supply Chain. It's time to think really big again, and I mean really big. I'm Bob Troublecock, and joining me today is Byron Bennett. Byron is the CEO of Zergratran. Byron, welcome. Thanks, Bob. It's great being on with you. Well, we're glad to have you. So some years ago, I heard the term BHAG for the first time at a software conference. The CEO of Red Prairie, now Blue Yonder, announced that it was time for the company to go into BHAG mode. That term stood for big, hairy, audacious goals. He wanted to think really, really big. I thought back to that term as I was getting ready for this conversation with Byron, who is, well, a guy thinking really, really big. He and his company, again, Zergotran, and in a minute, we're going to ask him to tell us just what that means, are proposing to build an underground transit system known as Porto Internacional Las Americas, PILA, in Northern Colombia. The project will develop new ports on the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean and transfer shipping containers through an underground tunnel system using a unique technology. It's an alternative to the Panama Canal, which was perhaps one of the seven wonders of the industrial world. It sounds to me like a BHAG project. So Byron, let's get started. First, I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself and your background, but before you do that, just tell me what Zergatran means. <laughs> Zergatran starts, uh, stands for Zero Gravity Transportation. Okay, that's like out of the Jetsons. <laughs> yeah, we, I'm, 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 I'm of your age group, so we kind of remember when we were promised a better transportation system like the yes. Jetsons, but all of that sort of went into the military industrial complex and and now it looks like we're going to get to play with some of it. <laughs> right. So again, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. If I remember correctly from our first conversation, you're not a supply chain guy by training, correct? Yeah, no. Uh, my background in more is more finance and entrepreneurship. I kind of stumbled upon this uh, problem that needed a solution. Um, I graduated from the Wharton School in 94, undergraduate. And like most, I moved to New York and worked in finance. And then I started uh, various uh, entrepreneurial projects. I'm talking a chocolate store, a wine store, uh, some fintech companies, a little bit all over the place. Uh, So I'm more of a serial entrepreneur. So let's talk about the project. And before we focus on that technology. How did this idea even come about? I, I, you know, I try to imagine somebody looking at the Panama Canal and saying, well, what if I dug a tunnel? You know, how, where, what was the catalyst? And I, I, I already asked you what Zergatran stands for, but just, you know, how did you come up with this idea? Yeah, the interesting thing is uh, NASA put out this concept for a maglev launcher about 20 years ago. And I've been thinking about using that concept to build a shuttle system for the Caribbean. And my wife, who is from Colombia, 
when she wanted to go back to Colombia, I started thinking about what I could do there. And that's when I started focus on uh, the largest global marine trade bottleneck, which is around the Panama Canal. And that was the genesis of the idea. And then looking into it further, we sort of focused on the various uh, technology to use based on what we wanted the capacity to be. As you understand it, what's the need? You know, what what is the problem you're going to solve if you bring this to fruition? Yeah, the the thing is... um, the Panama Canal is absolutely amazing. And as you said, it was, uh, is one of the wonders of the world. I think at this point, it's the second largest uh, man-made project after the Great Wall. But the thing is, over the past years, trade volume just keeps growing up, 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 up. And there's no forecast that say trade is going to go down. And what's happening is the Panama Canal used to see 5% of trade go through it. That's down to 3%. And that's because trade just keeps going up. And the Panama Canal has a capacity limit of about 50 ships per day. And most of those are not container ships. So another spigot another highway, another land bridge, whatever you want to term it, is needed to get those uh, trade volumes back up, what is crossing directly between the North Atlantic and North Pacific. So that was the, that's the problem, and that's the need. And expressed in a more global manner, um, you'll see that around the world, there's like five major marine trade choke points. And The Panama Canal is the largest. There's always a two to 12 day wait to cross. And the container ships typically are the ones waiting the 10 to 12 days to cross. So that's just the bottleneck right there. And everything that can't go across the canal has to go around through the Suez or through another option. So that's the bottleneck and the need. And that need is not going to change. It's just getting greater. And that's one of the things that uh, the whole COVID and uh, pandemic episode has highlighted. Has the, you know, we went through an expansion of the Panama Canal to accept the larger ships. And uh, and I just wondered, I hadn't thought of this before, but um, what impact has, you know, the, the very large container ships, many of which can't be you know, really unloaded in the U.S. because our ports aren't ready for them. What what impact has that had on the bottleneck, if any? Yeah, uh, a couple things there. The shippers knew what they were doing when they ordered the very large ships and that most of the ports would not be able uh, to handle them. So they knew it was going to cause more of a bottleneck at the ports, but it was better for them. So they ran with it. Now, how this will alleviate the bottleneck here is not just by transferring more goods across, but it's going to uh, cut down on wait times. Like 
people wait to cross the Panama Canal because they don't have a faster option. When that wait time goes above a couple weeks, then it becomes faster and more efficient to go through the Suez. Now, did that answer your question, Bob? Yeah, and I was, it's funny, um, I was going to ask this, and I'm sure my listeners who are shippers already know the question to this, but if I've got to go through the Suez Canal, you know, if I have to go through one of those other options that you mentioned, what does that add to my transit time? <laughs> About two weeks. Uh, that's does, the okay. easiest estimate, yeah. Hence, hence if I got to wait longer than two weeks, it's better to go through the Suez Canal, correct? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about your project. Um, so first, before I want to get to the technology underground in a moment, but just explain to uh, to our listeners, you know, port here, uh, you know, port there, and then how it would work. Uh, and then we'll get into the technology of how that would work in the tunnel. But talk a little bit about the project, you know, how, how, what what's going to be the components of it? How many miles? All of that stuff. Got it. Thank you. Um, in short, we're building two ports in a tunnel. Uh, we do that every day. So we're not talking about reinventing the wheel here. Uh, but what is uh, is an issue is the fact that we're talking about a very long tunnel, about 80 miles, uh, more than okay. twice the current longest tunnel. And we're looking at about eight years to build the whole project in three phases, a year for pre-feasibility, another year or so for feasibility, and about six years for construction. And overall, okay. we're looking at about $15.5 billion in three tranches, uh, five for pre-feasibility, $500 million for feasibility, another $15 billion for construction. So that's the overall of the project. Across northern Colombia, we're building two ports and connecting them by an underground tunnel so we can create another land bridge. And we liken it to the effect of adding a highway in Los Angeles. It's so needed, it will be used. Uh, goods flow to the cheapest, fastest, most efficient option. And if we can provide another uh, land bridge that increases the volume that's transferred directly between the Pacific and Atlantic, it will be used. You know, surprisingly, uh, this is weird. This is the, the, the world we live in. 15 billion doesn't, for what you're proposing, 15 billion actually seems like a modest sum. Yeah. Um, we're going that number will be revised during pre-feasibility, but we think it's going to be around that. Uh, a lot of it is that the area that we're going to be uh, building in, um, the land and costs uh, are a lot cheaper there okay. than most of your tunneling projects that are in cities or um, more populated or complicated areas. So let's talk about the mechanics, uh, and then I want to get to the zero gravity thing. So the mechanics, uh, one, I'm assuming uh, the ports will be able to handle the big ships, but a ship will come on the uh, Pacific side, right? And what be unloaded onto whatever is your transportation mechanism to get through the tunnel, 
and then reloaded on the other side, on the Atlantic side? Correct. Um, okay. The facility, uh, one of the larger challenges with building uh, a tunnel of the size is what to do with all the excavations. Uh, when okay. London finished Crossrails, they end up shipping most of the excavations west to a nature park and to create some islands. We're going to have over twice as much excavations, over 50 million tons. Uh, wow. So what we're going to do is use some of it to uh, create uh, two islands and put our ports right off the coast. Uh, that also means it's less disturbing uh, to the environment. So what you'll have is one of these 20,000 TEU uh, ships uh, that can't cross the canal. Uh, it used to be nothing above 13,000 could cross. Now with the expansion, they had a ship around 16,000 cross uh, um, about six months back or so. Uh, but that's outside of the norm. So one of these larger ships, instead of deciding to go the long way around, they can decide to uh, drop off at our port, and I'll get back to it later, fill up at our port. But right now we're talking about the drop off. So this ship would come into our port. Now our port design, since we're building from scratch, we're building an island with a center canal where the ships will come in and dock in at angles. And you'll have, our goal is to have 100 berths uh, on each island. So the ships would dock and I'm not sure if you've had a chance to take a look at our video for this, but in our video overview, you'll see that there's no cranes next to the ships and there's no trucks next to the ships. That's because we're re-imaging how ports are designed so that we can increase the speed and efficiency. Right now, that 20,000 TEU ship would take about uh, two weeks to turn over. Uh, we would like to get that number significantly down. And the only way to do that is to um, uh, treat these ships as if they're coming into a production or a warehouse environment uh, where everything is in uh, continuous motion and to put more cranes on the problem. So what we've decided to do is go with the superstructure that supports putting the cranes above the ships. And if we can, we will put a crane above every column of containers on a ship. Uh, that way we can turn over the ships rapidly. The cranes would take the containers to the side of the ship and put them onto trays that'll take the container through a security station and then through the tunnel and the process is reversed on the other side. Now, what we're going for is instead of two weeks, imagine if we can get that ship turned over in under six hours by putting instead of six of these large Grand Tree cranes on it, but a couple hundred uh, uh, robot cranes above each ship. So our target is to turn over the ship in under six hours 
and to transfer the containers across in under 30 minutes. Now, I'll stop for there uh, and can go into that part, but uh, that's the basic idea. Turn the ship over in over uh, in under six hours, get the containers across in under 30 minutes. And because uh, the ships will be docked together and the cranes will be overhead, we'll be able to cross dock between all of the ships uh, in the port. So then six hours uh, reloading on the other uh, on the other side. Uh, uh, correct. Well, that's pretty quick. So explain, uh, I, I was going to ask you, so how fast can you go through this tunnel? I think you just answered that about 40 miles an hour. Talk about the zero well, gravity uh, technology. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Um, most people don't know that there's a rail line next to the Panama Canal, uh, but only about 500,000 containers can uh, cross each year because of the difficulty of the terrain, et cetera. Um, so when we were looking at doing this and we're looking at these massive ships, 20,000 containers is a lot. If we line them up, that's pretty much the length of one of our tracks. So we had to envision a system that would allow us to not just unload and load the containers at that speed, but move them across at that speed. So we settled on using maglev, uh, magnetic levitation, uh, to transfer the containers across at speed. And that also allows us to transfer them individually. Now, in terms of what we're going for, we're going for a, a, a minimum speed of around 200 miles per hour. Uh, that Whoa. way, with our ramp up and ramp down time, we can get the containers across in under 30 minutes. Uh, there's a company, Max Bogle in Germany, that's testing a system at the port of Hamburg right now where they're floating a 40-foot container on a maglev track. And they spent 12 years building out their system, and um, it works, but it has a top speed of about 150 miles per hour because of the switching components they use. So we're going to work with them and others to see if we can get that speed up. Uh, but again, uh, we're talking about very large, very heavy uh, containers. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, routing and collision management and other things. But yeah, uh, top speed of about 200, well, we want a minimum speed about 200, 250 miles per hour. So <clears throat> this is really interesting. So it's not going to be like an intermodal train, right, where all of the, I, I think you used the term tray, where all the trays are connected. They're going to be individually moving uh, the containers across? Correct. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, if we lined up all of the containers from one ship, it would be the length of one of our tracks, and we're going to have four tracks within our tunnel. So okay. we had to go with a slightly uh, different system. Now, as these containers are going across, uh, they are going to come up uh, to each other to where it looks like they're moving across in a train. And so, and, and when you mentioned four tracks, so theoretically you could be moving, uh, 
um, side by side for containers. I realize, you know, it's not going to exactly work out that way, but essentially, you know, four containers at a time. Yes. Um, each of the tracks will be bi-directional um, okay. uh, to allow us to manage space. Uh, uh, speed and collision management as well, uh, as well as what's in port. Like you can imagine that the ships uh, that that come into port on our Pacific side might be a heavier load than what's coming into port on the Atlantic side. Uh, and we can touch on that, but pretty much um 60 percent of the ships go back to asia empty because there's not as much flow going back that direction so right. you may see that our lines going from uh west to east uh we're losing we're using that more of the day or we're using three tracks going west to east and one going east to west it depend on flow but uh, I see that as one difference. There's just a smaller amount of trade going the opposite direction. Excuse me. Uh, so Byron, uh, two questions related to geography. Beyond the fact that you're married to somebody from Colombia, um, why <laughs> Colombia? This is like, well, you know, I need to make good with my wife. So I, I decided to do it. Um, you know, why why Colombia? And then second, the only project... Uh, that I, and I published something in Supply Chain Management Review, I don't know, five or six years ago about this. I know there was a project being proposed, I think, crossing Nicaragua. Um, and perhaps it was uh, a Chinese project. Um, but why Colombia? And, um, you know, what what's going on in terms of competing projects? Like, is the Nicaragua project done? Uh, you know, not, I don't mean done, like done, like cooked, like not happening. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure, but my opinion is probably yes. Um, <clears throat> pretty much um, what I've been told is that the proposals for an additional canal uh, across Nicaragua, across the same area of Colombia that we're looking at up the Atraca yeah. River won't go forward because they're just would just be too destructive to the environment uh, okay. and can't pass environmental review. Now, in terms of why Colombia, uh, I learned very early that my wife is always right. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no uh, most people don't know that there's still no rail and road connection to South America. Uh, essentially, there's about a 75-mile gap across the Panama-Columbia border where there's no rail and road connection. So one of the things that we wanted to do was feel the ships returning to Asia uh, with full loads. Um, that way, the shippers had even less incentive to make the long journey. So putting the facility across northern Colombia will allow us rail and road access to all of South America. Uh, that way, goods can be brought up by 
brought up through the countries uh, to our facility and distributed east or west very efficiently. And because of that, I believe that you will see a lot of uh, uh, nearshoring production and manufacturing develop around the facility. And it may uh, end up being as large or larger than Panama City. Uh, Panama City built up to support this transit point. Well, now we're not building up to support a transit point. You're talking about building up uh, to support a distribution center. So, um, in our you know in our uh, build up to this before we went live, you you mentioned um, ESG, and when I asked you about Nicaragua, you also hit on the environmental concerns around that project. But um, as you know, across supply chain, um, ESG, particularly around sustainability and carbon footprint, have become, you know, real buzzwords and a focus right now. So, you know, do you see um, and are you pitching an ESG play for this? And if so, what is it? How does this uh, help uh, shippers address their sustainability issues, if at all? Well, um, well, first, our entire facility will be sustainable and green. Uh, all of the energy sources that we build uh, for to support the facility uh, will be sustainable. Now, how that affects the shippers? Well, the main thing is uh, for people is that while they want to support sustainability, it has to hit their bottom line, right? So right now you have a situation where uh, the shippers have full loads in one direction, but in the other direction, they're 60% empty. So they're burning a lot of fuel uh, um, and burning a lot of time, which they would cut out if they could. So we're gonna, that will directly affect their bottom lines, but it will also directly uh, affect uh, their imprint. 15% uh, of greenhouse gas emissions comes from transportation and shipping. Well, guess what? 70% of the containers that we move are empty and 60% of the containers that we're sending back to Asia are empty. That's the definition of inefficiency and waste and pollution. So our system will help cut that down um, um, as well as provide uh, time savings and allow the shippers to uh, reduce their fuel costs, uh, et cetera. Um, but of course, you have uh, the effects on port congestion um, and idling uh, as well. So last question, you know, there's a lot of challenges to getting a big project done. And when you're dealing with emerging countries, I don't mean to cast, a, uh, you know, aspersions on Colombia, but corruption in, um, you know, emerging countries is rampant. What's going to be your biggest hurdle to pull this off? And how do you envision getting over it? I, <laughs> the thing is, our biggest hurdle uh, has turned out to be political. Uh, 
Um, we've been speaking with a lot of investors and what they're asking us is, do we have support from Colombia? Do we have support from the U.S.? Are we strategically aligned with the U.S.? They want to know those things largely because they want to know that we can mitigate the risk uh, from the other stakeholders uh, in the region, the political risk, uh, the cartels, uh, etc. So yeah. right now, what we're having to do is reach out to people in both governments um, to try and make our case and get some clear letters of interest or expressions of support from them. I've recently reached out to um, Peter DeFazio, who was head of the uh, Transportation Committee. Uh, he's outgoing. The incoming is Sam Graves. I reached out to uh, his office uh, on the Columbia side. We're trying to get in touch with the uh, ambassador to the U.S., uh, Luis Murillo. He is from the region uh, that we're going to be building in. Um, the vice president is also from that region, and both of them are very uh, uh, are environmentalists uh, that are pro-sustainability. One thing about this project is that the proposed canals can't go forward or won't go forward because of the destruction that they would cause to the environment. However, we're going to be building 20 meters uh below ground or digging 20 meters below ground for the most part. So our impact is going to be minimal. So we are asking the executive team in Colombia for a letter of interest uh, that we can take to the World Bank and the um, uh, International Development Bank for the funds we need to complete pre-feasibility and just to show that support. So I actually thought of one last question. Um, when I, I, I was at uh, an event in Las Vegas last week called Manifest, and the keynote speaker who kicked off the event uh, was Shaker Natarajan, who is the uh, chief supply chain officer for American Eagle, but also the president for uh, a new venture coming out of American Eagle called Quiet Platforms, which is you know, a whole different way of rethinking the, um, the e-fulfillment uh, supply chain. And one of the things Shaker said is, you know, when I, tell, when I talk to people, uh, they tell me I'm crazy and, uh, and I don't care. Um, but, and, and it's because it's a big project, right? When you propose yeah. big things, people look at you a little bit like, you know, perhaps you're a little crazy. And I just wondered you know, how people are uh, receptive to this big idea. Do, do they look at you like, you know, I don't know, Byron, this is, uh, you know, this is, uh, this sounds a little crazy. Or have they been receptive to the idea if you can get over the hurdles? Oh, gosh. Yeah. A lot of people have thought we were crazy and questioned whether or not this was a real project or a scam. Because it yes. just takes some wrapping your head around the size. Uh, I had one guy uh, here in Florida, we were talking to about investing, 
joined one of our team meetings and then afterwards he was like it was great that you can get so many people on a call meaning that all these people were a part of this scam so it's been it's been uh it's less so now people now more understand well one when we started this people didn't understand the problem now they understand the problem and are looking for solutions uh so now we get that less so but it's still a massive project with a lot of uh risk and points where you can say no uh so it's 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 taken some convincing to get people on board with what we're trying to do um but what we're trying to do is, is is so needed is so necessary uh would have so much impact on uh, not just trade and not just the bottom line uh, for the shippers, but also uh, on this region and on Colombia and on South America. Uh, this region is the poorest in Colombia, and we're going to be adding jobs, uh, roads, telecom, uh, electricity, uh, you name it. We're going to be completely uplifting that area. And if, as we see, um uh the area develops uh to take advantage of this opportunity then you're talking about uh significantly impacting the gdp of every country in south america uh it, it it's a remarkable project um it is a bhag project i want to you know end where i began uh byron that's all the time we have today and uh, i want to thank byron bennett of zergretran for joining me Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. Until then, for Supply Chain Management Review, Modern Materials Handling and Talking Supply Chain, I'm Bob Troublecock. Again, thanks, Byron. Thanks, Bob. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247 or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.